Macworld Podcast, number 22, January 12th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Sarus Faravar. We're on day three of the Macworld Expo and Conference, brought to you from our favorite city, San Francisco, just a short few blocks from the Macworld offices. Of course, all this week we've got coverage of the show floor and the news and the analysis and all the new announcements that have been happening this week, and you can find, of course, all of that here at Macworld.com and at our special Macworld Expo page available at Macworld.com slash expo. Today we're going to be focusing on the transition to Intel. Macworld's editorial director, Jason Snell, led a roundtable discussion today on the Expo show floor at the Macworld Live booth to talk about the transition to Intel, and we're going to bring you that session in its entirety, about 45 minutes long, right now. All right. This is our first uh, Macworld Live booth experience in a little while, and we're still working out some of the kinks, but um, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm Jason Snell. I'm the editorial director of Macworld Magazine, Macworld.com, all that great Mac publishing stuff. The topic of this panel is the Intel transition, and of course when we set this or this show, this sideshow, whatever you want to call it, when we set it up, we were like, ooh, hope there's Intel news at Macworld Expo, or this is going to be the most boring session of all time. And there was, so that's, that's good news. Who is the man to my right? It is Rich Siegel. But that, the, you, there are lots of questions on my slides. This is, a, this is an FAQ, a live FAQ. All the excitement of reading an FAQ on the Internet. Huh, live. <laughs> Rich Siegel is the president, founder, chief bottle washer at Barebone Software, makers of, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me, BB Edit, Text Wrangler, uh, uh, Mailsmith, and Super Get Info. Do you have any other products that I'm forgetting? Well, we, we're actually working on something new. Those of you who visited our website recently have probably seen a, a teaser for coming soon, but that's it. Is it in the... Do you have a booth? Do we you don't, have a we don't have a booth this year. At, at right now, back at the office, noses are being firmly applied to grindstones. Ah, excellent. So this is the panel. What, now... Um, and my esteemed colleagues. Yes, yes. Yes, it's me and Rich. This is the Jason and Rich Show. Well, <laughs> the idea here is that... Um, I've been spending a lot of time talking to Apple and talking to developers and and developers like Rich about what's going on with the Intel transition. I thought we would try to preemptively answer some of your questions about this. And also, um, I asked Rich to join me because Rich is a developer who has applications who have had to be transitioned to Intel. And so I think he can, a lot of the questions we get are about, well, you know, when when are my my apps, when are my utilities going to be showing up for Intel and how does that affect when I buy an Intel-based Mac. And so I think Rich can talk about that. Plus, he can pontificate about any other topic that he likes. Think about it. Consider really? it carefully. Well, related to the Intel transition. Oh. Yes. Afterward, come up to Rich and ask him his opinions <laughs> about other topics, and he'll share them with you, too. And then hopefully we'll take some of your questions if we've got time. We've got until 11.45. So let's get to the questions. The questions that I'm asking myself, which is always amusing. So G3, then we have the G4, then we have the G5. Things have come to an end. What's going on? It's not a G6. What is it? What's going on? Little snapshot. The systems that Apple announced on Tuesday are based on the Intel Core Duo 
processor. That's the name, Core Duo. That is actually Intel's brand. It is their their brand. It used to be codename Yona, but now it is Core Duo. Um, So the G's are dead. Uh, Core Duo is a dual-core processor. Core Duo, Core, Core Duo, Core. You see the marketing that went into that. (laughs) Um, And as a result, it's one chip, but it's got essentially two processor brains on it. It's got a big... Um, two megabyte level two cache, which means that um, the two processors can store lots of information, caching on that RAM. It, it, it helps with energy efficiency. It helps with speed. Um, basically, um, that so that chip's going in the MacBook Pro. I'm still trying to learn how to say that, and the new iMac. And you're seeing big speed results in Apple's speed claims. One of the reasons you're seeing that is because Apple has essentially gone from one processor to two in both of those systems, systems that only used to have a single processor before. Because there's this duo, the dual core of the core, the dual core of the core duo allows that to happen. Um, I, I still want to call it the PowerBook duo. I don't know why. I, I don't know why. Duo 200, duo 2000, <laughs> um, duo 2006. So, so as a result, Apple saying the iMac's going to be 2x, two times the speed of the old iMac, the, the, the MacBook Pro is going to be faster than the PowerBook. MacBook Pro, MacBook Pro, MacBook Pro. I'll get it eventually. <laughs> Even though, if you look at the clock speeds, the clock speeds of the new iMacs are actually lower than the clock speeds of the G5 iMacs. Um, part of that is because the chips are supposed to be more efficient, but part of it is that there are two brains in there now, and so you're going to get double performance. So this, this prompts another question, which is the whole megahertz myth issue, which we asked Apple about yesterday. You know... Oh, wasn't Intel the one that had the two, three, four, five zillion gigahertz processors? And when we talked to Apple, one of the things that they, they told us was Intel as a company, I mean, we weren't paying attention because as Mac users, who pays attention to Intel, really? Um, and they had this day of reckoning where they're like, wow, just like IBM was saying we can't make three gigahertz G5s, Intel was like, you know, we can't, we're having trouble getting these higher clock speeds. And, we, and they realize we're a victim of our own marketing. We've created yep. this world where faster clock speed is all people care about. We've marketed that 2 gigahertz, 3 gigahertz, faster, faster, faster. And now they have chips that are just bursting to flames when they're drawn on paper by the engineers because they're so hot. And, and so what the Apple engineers told us is, yes, they've got a great relationship with Intel. And one of the reasons that that relationship happened is because Intel made this essentially 90-degree 90, 90 turn about a year or two ago and said, we can't play that game anymore. We can't play the push the megahertz anymore. We have to be more efficient. We have to be heat efficient. We have to make processors that do more work at lower clock speeds. Of that choice, fruit of a choice, fruit of a labor, the first chip to actually take that to heart is this Core Duo, which is not a blazing clock speed processor, but is thermally efficient, power efficient, and it's fast, even though its clock speeds are you know two gigahertz and under. Right, and and the priorities are in that order: thermal efficiency and power efficiency. The two packages in which those two considerations are at their utmost are in the iMac and in the laptops. So you know when you there was a lot of speculation about okay, what are the first Intel machines going to be? And in retrospect, these were the natural choices, even though initially they weren't really intuitive. I didn't think they were going to rev the iMac so quickly, and they did. 
Well, the interesting thing about the Core Duo is the Core Duo is a chip that was made for laptops. All of the coverage yeah. of this was chip for laptops. And what Apple says is, yeah, well, it's a laptop chip, but the iMac is like a laptop. It's this incredibly small space yep. that you have to fit a computer in. And you don't, it can't be that hot because you don't want the big fan blowing through there, as a lot of iMac users know. And so it was a, a natural for that. So, um, and that's where we are. Core Duo is it for now. There may be others to come. But um, let's see what the next question is. Hey. So Core Duo, what else is there? Is there Core Solo? And, in fact, there is Core Solo. There mm-hmm. is a single core version of that chip. Uh, when I asked Apple about what this meant to them, they said... You've got to parse Apple's words very carefully. What they said was, this is the right chip, Core Duo, for these exact products. Which has, in my mind, has, maybe I'm paranoid here, it has a double meaning. Which is, you could see a Core Solo. You could see something that's even lower power, lower heat in an iBook or MacBook or it whatever is, they call it. You know it's going to be a MacBook. Or maybe it's a sub-notebook or who knows what it's going to be. Right. But there is that chip Or Mac, or down Mac there. Mini. Or Mac Mini. So there is that down there. Um, also, interesting, the, the iMac and the MacBook Pro, I'll get it. You're, you're doing great. Are very similar to each other. Uh-huh. They're very, very similar in terms of their RAM, in terms of their video card. Um, so, you know, it, they're almost like a, a, a set. Well, it's, it's not always visible to us as Mac users, but if you look at Apple's engineering They've gotten extremely good at repurposing their architecture so they can build one machine and package it three, four different ways. Yeah, so they get a yeah. lot of reuse efficiency out of, out of a good design like that. And this particular machine sort of started when the iMac G5 came out. The, 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 this, this last iMac G5 with the, with the, uh, the iSight camera on it. Because the, a lot of these changes um, a lot that, that are in the, in the whole product line now, or the new products now, started with that iMac. Not mm-hmm. the Intel chip, but the PCI Express-based yep. stuff. A faster yep. bus, faster RAM. Um, and if you look at the iMac, the Intel iMac versus the non-Intel iMac right now, there are almost no differences. There's a little minor difference, which is that it's an Intel processor in there. The RAM is a little bit faster, and I think mm-hmm. the max RAM is lower because the RAM configuration is slightly different. I think they're just two slots 640K now. or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody will ever need more than 640K RAM. Are you kidding me? Maybe with a RAM disk of a <laughs> floppy. Um, what else? The graphics is different. That's the biggest difference. In my mind, other than the Intel processor, the big... I mean, other than the Intel processor, the biggest difference is the graphics. iMacs forever have been crippled when it came to video. All you could do was video out, it was analog video out, and it had to mirror your iMac screen. And the new iMacs have, have mini DVI out, the same as on my PowerBook here. And so you've got a digital out, and it will do multi-display, which means you could buy an external display, put it next to your Intel iMac, and have two monitors, which is the first time the, the iMac has been able yep. to do that without you hacking its firmware. And the other thing that was, that was interesting to observe is a, a benefit of the Intel switch is... The, the, graphic, uh, the graphics options are going to come much more into line with the current states of the art. Right. The, you know, the high-speed stuff, the really top-drawer graphics are all for the Intel architecture and for PCI Express. The X1600 uh, that they're using is it's right up there. And, and, and it's really to great to see. That I think for the first time with the iMac, there's configurable uh, RAM on the video card. If you uh-huh. buy the 20-inch iMac, you can actually go up to 256 
on the video card, which is it's Apple a, saying, you know, you can really do stuff. With it's going to be a great gamer's machine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's the next question? I wonder. How much work did Apple have to do to get OS X running on Intel? I mean, you know, the, some some people forget when when Jobs was talking back in June, but you know, it's the secret life of OS X. You know, that's not a joke. That's not like a marketing ploy or or, or a prank for the keynote. Apple has had people in like locked. I, I envision them locked in a room with no windows. You know, big, big Faraday copper yeah. cage around it so nothing gets out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know any of those people, but basically, part of the qualification I, process. I can't say. Haha. <laughs> uh, for OS Ten over the years has been to build it to run on Intel. The whole time they've been running it on Intel, and they're they're serious about that. This has been part of the deal. So yeah. basically, at some point, some smart person. I don't know if it's Steve Jobs or somebody else or a, you know. Some group at Apple said, we got to keep our options open. So let's make sure that we can go to Intel on a, maybe not a moment's notice, but on, on six months notice. or a year's notice. Yep. As it turns out, about six or seven months notice. And they did. I, I would not at all be surprised to learn that Apple's got uh, the, the OS running on parts we've never heard of. Not PowerPC, not Intel, maybe something completely different. Well, in the history with like, like HPPA or RISC or or, or, or um, um, ARM. Well, next step was made, and the, where where OS ten came from. Next yep. step was made to be processor independent, and yep. it ran on Motorola processors and it ran on Intel processors, and, and it's been part of the legacy of what is now OS ten to sort yep. of compile it and go anywhere. The original next machine was a sixty eight thousand machine. Exactly. So. And then, and then in the end, in the end times, they were running on Intel systems. Yeah. So, here's a good one. We're getting into the questions that really hit home with Rich. What will happen to my software? What's going to happen? Is it going to be? Is it going to be updated? And I think I've got a corollary to that, which is how do I tell if it's universal? So, different developers seem to have different approaches to how they're dealing with updating their software. Apple rolls out iLife 06. It's universal. Apple also says they're pro apps. They're going to make you pay 45 bucks and swap your disks for new disks that are universal. Right, and really that's not an upgrade fee. That's just sort of administration and handling yeah. and media because you know it's a thousand dollar box. And, and they're a giant company, and it yeah. takes it costs 45 dollars to something to yeah to roll to get some water. Well, so the so, so the right so about the question of what's going to happen to your software. Do you want to start on that or well well what I wanted to say is that some developers. Are, 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 are going to wait. Like big developers, I think Microsoft Office, you're going to see Adobe Photoshop. It's unlikely, it seems to me, that they're going to say, oh, we're going to do a rev now that does universal. It's much more likely that the next big version will be universal. That's but, my guess. But lots of other developers, including yourself, have just, in some ways, very quietly rolled out updates to your software, and it's universal. So what was the thought process you went through? Well... We, we were in an odd position when Apple announced at the developers conference this past summer that they were going to uh, switch to Intel and that there was going to be a, 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 a migration, a, a porting process. We started getting calls and emails and postcards from people inside of Apple who were working on transition engineering and developers outside of outside of Apple who are also working on their own transition engineering, so we had to get right on it and start delivering software that these people could then use to engineer the transition. So you were really you really were on a, on a moment's notice because we, we, you, your people are are the people who are building the stuff that everybody else is going to get in six months. Exactly. 
So we actually had engineers at the developers conference, and you know they have their laptops with source code, and they went right into the lab. And a day later, they had BBEdit built and running after a fashion on transition hardware on prototype hardware. Then they brought their work home, and about a week and a half later, we were ready for testing. So what were the what you know? This is the big question: Is how hard is it to go Intel native, to go universal? And I know it's going to vary for every program, for every developer. But you know, what was your experience, and what were the pitfalls, and what were the easy parts? Well, well, it really does depend on the complexity and the relative age, the maturity of the application. Something brand new that you wrote in the past eight months or to a year is going to be really easy because it's probably already uh, uh, ten targeted. It's already Cocoa or it's modern. Uh, carbon code, and so it's very easy to to, to port. Uh, but a product like BB Edit that is literally over a dozen years old has lots of dusty corners to look at. Now, fortunately, with BB Edit, we've been through multiple major OS transitions. We took it from 68K to PowerPC. We took it from Mac OS 6 to Mac OS 7. We took it from uh, Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10. And so every time you do that, you learn, you learn a little bit more about how to execute a transition like that. And you learn that when you follow the rules that Apple sets down, when you follow the best practices that they recommend, it gets easier every time. And so the Intel transition was probably, for us, the easiest of all the transitions we'd ever been through. So the 9 to 10 transition, for example, meant we went through every single line of code in all of our products and made it ready for Mac OS X. So when it came time to Intel to, to go Intel, all we had to do was deal with just those few places where we deal with binary data on disk and, and things like that, and, and that turned out not to be a whole lot of work. So now, when I've asked some developers about this situation, what they've, what they've essentially told me is the 9 to 10 transition was hard, uh-huh. but it got us, it basically made us do a lot of the work that ended up paying off with the Intel transition. Absolutely that like 9 to 10 agreed. was about Apple saying, look, don't be deep down in the system. Write yep. to the, the, you know, program to the stuff that we've got up here. And in the background, I mean, the reason that happens is because Next Step and Mac OS X were meant to be at a remove so you could recompile for all these different processes. Exactly, exactly. So you did a lot of work, I'm assuming, so, so on the OS X transition. That was probably we, a huge we, we did an enormous amount of work. And, and we also did a, a smaller but noticeable amount of work porting between different development tools. And that's the other thing that Apple recommended. They, you know, a, a couple of years ago, right before the G5s came out, a couple of very large guys in, in pinstriped suits <laughs> yanked me in the back of a limousine, and they said, look, we're not telling you anything, but you really ought to make sure your code builds with Apple's tools. And then they kicked me out. It was raining. Miserable. Nice program you got there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Exactly. You know, and I think they might have said that hmm. now that I think of it. And after the bruises healed, I, I went back to the office and I said, you know what, we've got to make sure our code builds and runs using Apple's toolchain, using Xcode, which is their, their development system. And that also paid off because now to, to generate Intel code, if you're using older tools, you have to go from Code Warrior to Xcode then you've got to go from PowerPC to Intel. And those are two pretty big transitions to make at once. So when you were, um, I mean, understandably, your customers are, are demanding um, your tools now. But you've yes. got, so you've got BB Edit, but you've also got Text Wrangler. Uh-huh. You've got MailSmith. What's the thought process like for a developer in terms of, you know, 
is this a major release for me? Do I make people wait for Universal? Do I get it out to them now? If it's a lot of work for me to do this, do I want to get something back? Or is it really just sort of like, look, my customers need it. I'm not going to tax them for buying an Intel system. Yeah, it, it, it really, the, the, I'd, I'd say more the latter. When, when we shipped BB Edit for, for Intel back in July, I think was the first version. We did an update in, in August. Um, I mean, that was the thought process. People need the tools. You can't put their feet to the fire for them. That's, that's not the way you treat your customers. Now, that said, the amount of work required to do an Intel transition is something that as a businessman and as a developer, I have to keep in mind what it's going to cost. So if there's a significant amount of work and I roll that up with major feature improvements, then you can say, okay, here's a... 0.0 version, a brand new major version, and it's Intel native. That's one way to do it, and I think a lot of developers are going to do it that way. You know, I expect the next Photoshop, for example, right. to be a major upgrade that's also Intel native. The next BB Edit, well, the next BB Edit already runs on Intel, so the next major upgrade is going to be a major feature upgrade. So now, is there is there a varying degree of Intel Intelness about it? I, I I'm. It, it, it's it's absolutely. Do you have actually. more? Do you have more that you can do to make it more efficient, or is it really either you're running natively or not? I'm just wondering if a next version of BB Edit you might be starting to do some tweaks to make it run better on Intel, or is it sort of all or nothing? It's pretty much all or nothing. I mean, I can't speak for the way other developers build their code, but I, I think it's safe to say that at least in our case, we performance tune our stuff, and that tuning translates again because we're not coding to the processor; we're coding to the algorithms, to the processes that we need to run, you know, searching, for example. Well, we performance tune that, and as a result, it's going to run optimally everywhere. So we, d- we depend on the compilers to do that kind of work for us, and with a modern optimizing compiler, it's, it's pretty easy to do. So is all of your stuff universal now? Not all of it. BB Edit is. We recently shipped a, an update to Text Wrangler version 2.1.1, and we didn't tell anybody, but it's universal too. And uh, Mailsmith, we're looking at it's a it's a, carry, uh, a a problem of very different character because there's a lot of backend stuff. There's a lot of binary data on disk and a lot of code we haven't really crawled through looking at it for that for that problem. And that really just leaves uh, SuperGet Info, which we may make uh, universal someday, but nobody's going to notice. I don't think. Right. It's well, that, that's that's the other issue that I wanted to bring up, which is about Rosetta. Uh-huh. Know, which is the technology that Apple wants to call dy- what is dynamic code translation technology, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not an emulator. Although, we, when back in the PowerPC days, we would call that we called that an emulator. I think Apple, which is sort of a misnomer. Yeah, Apple's concern is that if you use the word emulator, you're thinking of like a window that's got something weird in it and it's running slow and it's not part of your system. Exactly. And this is, in fact, much more like what happened if you remember back those of us old timers who were around during the PowerPC transition. You launch a program and it, you know you're on a Power Mac and it's Word 5.1. It's not native PowerPC code. It launches. It's got menus. Maybe it's a little sluggish. Maybe you notice. Maybe you don't. But but you there's no way to tell just from looking that exactly. it's it's running on in this in this code translation environment or whether it's running natively. There's just no way to tell. And that's the way it works with uh, Rosetta. Until you hold a stopwatch to it, there's no way you can tell. Other than in, in, in I, I should use. say you can you can click on the app and choose Get Info and it'll say Architecture, right? PowerPC or Intel or both, but that's 
it. I mean, there's no way. I'm sure somebody will make a little utility that, like, throws up a, a logo, depending on whether it is or not, like the shame meter. It's something it's like shame. that. shame. It's still not been updated. But, 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 but short of holding a... There, there are two things to keep in mind that when you're running an older application on an Intel machine, first of all, uh, short of holding up a stopwatch to it for certain operations, there's no way you're going to be able to tell. The second is, does it really matter? The... Uh, the machine's going to run the application faster than you can possibly drive it anyway. Well, right, and this is this is the thing: is for most apps. I mean, for BBEdit, if I was running an older version of BBEdit on an Intel machine in Rosetta, what would I notice? Would I notice like big search and replaces were slower? If I'm just typing in a text window, am I ever going to even notice if that that just, old version is running in Rosetta? If you're just typing, you're, no, you're going to have no idea. Right. It would have to be something serious, like a big grep search that's, that's Ex- got to do lots of crazy stuff over a bunch of files. Exactly. And it's got to do a lot of thinking. Exactly. But and otherwise, there, you're and not there are considerations there, too, like disk speed. Right. So, yeah. Right. So, and I think that's going to be an experience for a lot of people. Also, when you keep in mind that Apple's talking about 2x speed improvements or 3x speed improvements for a lot of these systems... One of the things that I can't wait to do when we get a, an, Intel, uh, an Intel iMac into the Macworld offices is do some Rosetta testing, too, because I'm wondering how much the slowness of using Rosetta is going to be offset by the speed of the new systems. I mean, it may be that they're not that much slower just because the new systems are so much faster. And, and you also want to take care to know what you're measuring. For example, uh, our stuff, BBEdit, and Text Wrangler in particular, is preemptively threaded and automatically takes advantage of extra processors in the OS. So it's going to run faster on, on two CPUs in a right. new iMac than it is on one in an old one. Right. So you're going to see some, some speed benefits based on multi-threading savviness as well as the whole issue. You throw in the Rosetta issue. So what, swi- what are you comparing? It's apples and pears and oranges. and So switch oh off my. the second processor. There you go. That's going to be a lot of fun for us, I think. <laughs> so I think we've covered this, which is will I have to buy new software? And the answer is going to be it depends. Uh-huh. Um, the best thing to do to answer both of these questions, how can I tell and will I have to buy new software? Most Mac developers are incredibly responsive. Go to their website. If you don't see an answer to your question, go to their contact form, go to their contact email address and ask. Say, I'm thinking of buying an Intel iMac or I just bought one. What's, you know, are, are you running Universal now? Are you going to have an update coming? Is it something I'm going to need to buy? And the, most likely they will tell you. Not, I mean, Apple is very secretive, but most developers are going to come out and say, yeah, we're working on something. You're not going to have to pay, it, pay for it. And, you know, within a month's time, everybody's going to have that information up on their website if I they don't so. already. So just look Version, on their look on their Tracker.com already has a, an Intel, I think they're calling it a... a the Mac Intel Mac something Intel or other. Intel Center, but it's basically they're going to start tracking in their database... Is this universal or not? Is this an Intel native or not? Yep. So you're going to be able to have a view in version tracker, and presumably Mac Update will do the same thing. Now, Macworld's going to start marking that stuff. It's going to be pretty clear, but when in doubt, ask the makers of those little utilities that you love and you can't live without. If it matters. If it matters. If it matters. Well, that's one of the questions. You know, should I buy an Intel Mac right now? And I guess what I could say is, if all the programs that you use are universal, if you use iLife and Mail... And you know, and Safari, and maybe a couple other third-party programs that are also universal. I mean, we haven't tested it. I it could burst into flames when you look at it. Funny, but my inclination is to say it's probably perfectly fine if you're in that scenario. If you're relying on something that is not universal, 
and it's where you spend most of your time, or a few apps that you spend most of your time, then it's worth thinking about, and it's worth waiting and seeing what some of the test results are. Yep. Some programs that are incredibly processor-intensive could be not an option. I mean, Apple Final Cut Pro will run on Intel. It'll, it'll yell at you. It'll say, this is bad. This system is not friendly. I don't like it. I don't want to run here. But it'll run. It just won't run well. And Apple says, don't do it. We're not, not going to even support it. And there are going to be some programs like that. In Photoshop, if you want to eke every last second of speed out of Photoshop and it's not native, maybe not worth buying an Intel Mac today. I, I completely agree. One observation I would have, though, is it also depends on what you currently have. You know, if you bought an iMac G5 in the past year, you're set for the lifetime of that machine. Yeah. But if you have a, a, an old iMac G3 or an, or an old Power Mac G4 500, you're not going to lose if you buy a power, if you buy an iMac right. today. Right. The speed boost is going to be such that even if you're running in Rosetta, unless it's something that's so kind of processor deeply processor, it, but you're not going to be running Final Cut Pro on that the current version of Final Cut Pro on that G3 it, anyway. Exactly. So. If it's somebody's worst case for Rosetta, well, maybe, but yeah. But generally, the speed boost going from a two or three year old iMac to a new iMac is going to be so huge that even if some apps are running in Rosetta like Office, it's going to be okay. Absolutely. Here's a good one. Can Intel Macs run Windows? I love Apple's answer to this. Apple's answer to this is like, they, they've got a few. There's no way out, no way out, no way out. There's, I, I see nothing. I, uh, you know, Windows do, what? Do what, you, what? Do what you, I, I wash my hands of the whole thing. You kids, do what you want with a computer. But I mean, that's really Apple's response. Like, somebody's going to do it. They're crazy. They're going to do it. They can do it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to see it. And that's really Apple's opinion here. I think if the if what what do you think? How how long will it take once the Intel Macs really are out there where people can buy them? That it's going to take for somebody to get Windows up and running. On oh, them? I I would not be. I would not at all be surprised to see something some hack within the year that that lets you run Windows or or within uh, the year. I think within a year. Although I was thinking like a week. <laughs> no, I, I, I think running Windows, even remotely reliably on this thing, is going to take a lot of work. Well, one of the catches is that, is that this, this Mac doesn't use BIOS, the old system right. of booting PCs. It uses right. a new system whose name is EFI, which Windows XP does not support. Mm-hmm. Windows Vista will support it, but Windows XP does not support it. So in 2007, 8, 9, when Windows Vista ships... That, that might be a little easier proposition. I'm sure, you know, I, think I agree it's with you, somebody will do it, but it looks like it's going to be harder than we thought. I think it's much more likely that you'll see Linux on this. Oh, yeah, Linux for sure. And, and I would not be surprised if we see, I think certainly in 2006, we're going to see programs that are PC in a box inside a Mac. Virtual PC, maybe one of them. And, you know, the you know con- a VMware kind of thing. And, I think you and will the concept, see that. And the concept of virtualization... Uh, you know this this OS emulation on one of these machines is kind of a neat idea because you don't pay that big of a speed penalty. Yes, there's some overhead, but but you know, you're running at near PC. native speeds, running yeah, Windows exactly. apps at near native speeds inside inside a window, please. Inside of a box, yep. Because I don't want a Windows application floating out there with my <laughs> Mac programs. I don't want it. I want to put it in prison where it belongs, but run it at full speed, which I think yeah. is going to be awesome. Yes, I said awesome. Um, so Radical. I've run out of questions. Do you have more things that you would like to say, that topics that we haven't covered yet? 
Otherwise, since we have gathered a crowd, I, I was going to go to the audience and, ask, and get some questions. Uh, you know, I think questions from the audience questions are fine because you, you've covered everything. Okay, let's see. The first trick is to turn the microphone on. And I'll try to do some repeating of questions. Do you have a question? Well, back when you were asking about uh, software, if you should switch or hold off with your software, there are people still using, don't hit me, but classic. Classic. Good. No classic. Thank you for bring, bringing ones, it up. Right? Classic, dead on Intel. Deader than disco. No classic. I, I would imagine somebody at some point will come up with some crazy emulator, but it'll be for like a Quadra emulator or an SE emulator or something. Yeah, but basically, I, I if you rely know. on ca- classic apps, do not buy an Intel system. Well, if you rely on classic apps, either do not buy an Intel system or if you can, move Make, on. Move to, move to something else, right. I mean, those are really the options now. Classic you know, I, I understand there's a lot of specialized stuff, but yeah, it's, it's the end of the line it's for over. classic. Kid software, yeah. The kid software is starting yeah. to not be classic-based, but it's true. Yeah, it's Actually, I should agreed. say, an interesting sidelight, if, if you do have an Intel-based program and it starts to run funny, you can do the same thing you can do with OS 10, some OS 10 native programs, which is if you choose Get Info, there will be a run in Rosetta checkbox. Mm-hmm. Like there's a open in Classic checkbox, which, as a parent with some Dora the Explorer CD-ROMs, I can say that actually I use that feature because the OS X version didn't do the didn't reset the screen resolution right and all uh-huh. these things and in classic it worked fine so it's out there uh, that'll be one of our new uh, zap the PRAM you'll check run in Rosetta it'll be one of those troubleshooting things that right we do and that won't work for classic from. unfortunately but classic but is gone uh, other questions about Intel things you want to know I'm curious how soon it's going to be that we uh, can't run PowerPC apps. Uh, uh, or uh, that what's the question when you'll only be getting updates for Intel versions and rather it, than universal updates that's what I mean updates. yeah right right how soon till it's all over for the old stuff good question speaking, now, the, speaking the development tools seem to make it fairly easy for you to just keep building oh, yeah. universal right right so, so really then it just becomes a question of what you can test on and I mean there are millions just as in the 68,000 to PowerPC transition there were millions and I mean tens of millions, 68,000 machines out there. So it's a market that, you, as a developer, you want to support for a while. I'd, I'd be real surprised if if people started dropping Intel support within... PowerPC support. Sorry, PowerPC support within four, three, four, five years. I mean, we're, we're talking about years here. and the, the software will probably continue to run on PowerPC for past the useful life of today's PowerPC Max. And remember, Apple hasn't finished shipping PowerPC Max. They won't have an all-Intel product line until the end of this year. So that automatically adds a year to the timeline. So then the question becomes, okay, are, when do they stop selling new PowerPC Max, and when do, people, when do users of PowerPC Max stop buying new software? or stop spending money on software in, in significant measure. And the tail on that seems to be somewhere in, as I said, three, four, five years, depending on the kind of software and depending you know, on, the, on, the, on the customer. Well, and and the so. Intel, one of the things about the Intel transition is that it gives us a, a, a really big milepost about computer mortality, right? But that mortality is still there. I mean, if it wasn't Intel, it would be something else. That in three or four years down the line, 
a new version of your favorite app is going to come out, and the system requirements are going to say it doesn't run on your system. And it, it will happen. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, this may hasten it for some things, but you know, one of the advantages of using Apple's development tools is it is fairly easy to just build it universally. Yep. And since the sheer numbers are out there, I think it's going to be a while. It's definitely not going to be this year, and I, it's definitely not going to be next year either. One of the interesting things to watch is going to be people who rely on some kind of esoteric command line stuff that up to now OS X, it's just being built it for PowerPC. And now that stuff, if you're, a, if you're a terminal junkie and you're downloading some interesting stuff, or, or, or especially if you're not compiling it yourself, it's going to be kind of wacky for a little while for the real, like, serious, I'm running a Perl script here and I'm real building ble- this little ble- binary Bleeding here edge and, Darwin ports kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be scary. But that's what you get from being on the bleeding edge. Another question. Anyone? No? Nobody's more inquisitive? Okay. Just clarification. Are you saying, because this is different than what I heard from some of the developers on the floor, and it may just be that they haven't tested and so they don't want to say anything. Are you saying that within Rosetta, the only problems we would have with non-classic apps is that they might run slower, but that they should all actually work? Well, I, I think it's somewhat unclear. My, my understanding from talking to Apple is that um, Rosetta, there, there had been some talk that Rosetta only, em, only emulated or translated a certain kind of processor, and if you demanded enough, if you had to be on a G5, it wouldn't run, and it would tell you it wouldn't run. What Apple tells me is, and this is what they told me yesterday, Rosetta's going to try to run everything. That Rosetta isn't going to throw up a thing that says, sorry, this program has been optimized for a thing that isn't supported and I won't run it. It will try to run everything. It'll try to run Final Cut. But if you've got a program that is incredibly processor intensive, writes directly to, you know, assumes that there's certain kind of hardware on your system and it's digging way down into your system, that stuff might not run under Rosetta. But Rosetta will try and then it may fail and it may succeed. I would imagine the percentage of apps that won't work on Rosetta will be incredibly small. But if you rely on one of them, then it's incredibly big. It's incredibly big. important. Right. And the, if you're going to buy an Intel system, you better ask that developer that question. Right. The, the, the absolute number of, of PowerPC apps that won't run under Rosetta, I'm, I'm confident will be in the single digits. Yeah. Um, it, it's my understanding that, that Rosetta... Does, yeah, it's not sort of a focused processor emulator, but it won't run code that is targeted at G5s. It uses you know, 64-bit G5 instructions or G5-specific instructions. Um, I, I recently, not, not those, too long ago... But most ago, of those programs that you would get that would be a regular program would actually be, well, if it's a G5, do this. If it's a G4, do this. Exactly. And I, I recently had a conversation with an engineer who was working very hard at Altivec emulation, which is the G4's uh, math unit, G4's vector unit in Rosetta. Yeah, and Apple says that stuff works. I mean, that was one of the perceptions, and Apple was one of the reasons for that perception. Apple, in in June at the developer conference, didn't really want to commit, and they were like, some things might not work. Some Altivec, you know, velocity engine stuff might not work. But it's getting bigger. And now they're saying it's going to work. That now they seem way more confident about Rosetta's ability to run things than they were in June. So I think something's happened that they've realized they could get it to work even better than they thought it would. Now I, we'll, we'll now see. To go directly to your question, though, I can certainly understand how a developer isn't ready to answer your question. They can't say, 
we've tested this and we know it's going to work for you. They can say, we don't know, I don't know of anybody categorically saying it's not going to. And it's also their developers are in a tough position because they've only had these developer test machines, right? Which is like a Pentium three slapped in a G five case. P four actually, but who's okay, counting? But who's counting? Pentium, <laughs> never going to be in a Mac product. It exactly. Looks like now. That name never going to happen. Exactly. So, so even if you could get it to work under Rosetta using the 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 you know the test build of Intel on OS OS ten on Intel on this weird system that's been shoved in a G five case sort of randomly so that it's not going to you're don't not going to shock yourself. <laughs> Even if it ran on that as a developer, I don't think you could be confident to say, well, yes, of course, it'll work on the iMac. I think right. that everybody wants to get an iMac, get a MacBook Pro. See what I did there? I said it right. You did it. When it comes out, test it out, and be more confident about it. And there may be some, some shakedowns, but and, I think and, it'll and happen really fast that we'll know and, what and, the issues are. And we're going to do that, too. I mean, we're almost completely confident because of the way we work that our products running natively on the transition kit are going to run just as well on on shipping hardware, but no sane developer would uh, claim but make a guarantee complete compatibility work, yeah. without having first checked it out. Right. Well, Rich, thank you for coming and being thanks my, for my having guest. Me. Thanks, thanks the for guy listening, who knows guys. what happens with the code. He makes things run on Intel. I'm, I'm the token programmer. That's right. We appreciate it. Your token is very valuable. <laughs> you now must return your token. Thank you, everybody, for coming. We really appreciate it. That was our own editorial director, Jason Snell, leading an Intel transition roundtable discussion. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast. <laughs>